He's controversial. 20, 30, 40, 50 years from now, he's outspoken. You will tell your kids, and your grandkids, and your great, great grandkids. And he tells it like it is. That you watched a great athlete named the franchise, and he was the greatest world heavyweight champion of all time. He is the franchise Shane Douglas, and you are listening to the Triple Threat Podcast. Prepare to get your ass franchised. bullying me right now because you're both you're both making me feel very uncomfortable and uh i'm about to go find my uh my my dog and my blanket and go cower in in a corner someplace but let's get it rolling in your safe space yeah in my safe space but let's get it rolling right here and right now welcome back here to the triple threat podcast episode number 59 of the triple threat podcast being brought to you today on the two-man power trip of wrestling podcasting empire. If you didn't know by now, my name is Chad, and as always, I'm joined by my tag team partner on the two-man power trip, the one and only JP John Paz. And on this show, we are joined by the uh, the third guy, the third wheel, the third stooge here in this Three Stooges crew. He is the one and only franchise Shane Douglas. Shane, this is the only time I could ever call you a stooge, so I apologize already. <laughs> it's, the, it's the only time in my career it would ever it would ever apply. <laughs> Unlike others, we shall that shall remain nameless for now until we get into this show. <laughs> yeah, you know, and we're sitting here as we're you know we're shooting the breeze pre-show. We have some technical difficulties that knock. Me off, which is uh, kind of funny, as I'm like the uh, home base here, but uh, kind of throwing me off the game. I'm searching on the phone, looking for my figures. Toy Company read. I'm getting the show back on track here. <laughs> I'm a barrel full of a uh, barrel full of goodness. So Shane, uh, welcome back here to episode fifty nine. Uh, like I, you know, every week goes by, I keep on thinking myself. It's crazy that it, you know it's been fifty nine already, and 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 counting and getting stronger each week. Uh, Honestly, it really does feel like the show sort of writes itself, doesn't it? I mean, with the news that comes up every week and, you know, a lot of it good, a lot of it crazy, and a lot of it sad. You know, it's, uh, what a great outlet, you know, for it's, you know, for, for us, I, you know, speaking for myself especially, it's a, it's a labor of love and that we have so many great fans out there checking in each week and, and listening to what, you know, what we have to say, uh, is humbling to say the least, uh, but uh, just a quick thank you to everybody who takes the time to do that because it really is uh, pretty fucking cool to me. It's awesome. The feedback is unbelievable, and we really just want to keep on hearing the feedback uh, over and over. 
all the positive messages, all the great participation that we had in our Figures Toy Company giveaway that we posted this past week. Just a uh, an awesome, awesome response. And thank you again to Figures Toy Company for being on board with the Triple Threat Podcast and the Two-Man Power Trip. And we're so happy to bring this to the fans because this promotion that we were able to do, it's the first of a couple, but this one specifically, and Shane, it being your figure and all the stuff we talked about for the last, gosh, it almost seems like uh, since this figure came out, the last six months about it, uh, being able to give one away is very special. And before we get into some of these results here of this Figures Toy Company giveaway, I just want to read a little bit to you here about this great relationship we have with Figures Toy Company because Figures Toy Company is revolutionizing the wrestling figure, figure industry by creating collectible action figures of the hottest talent in the industry today, as well as paying homage to the legends of the past. And these fully posable 6-inch action figures are compatible with modern wrestling figures from other companies and feature intricate designs and realistic clothing accessories. The rising stars of professional wrestling and the legends of professional figure lines include such stars as Tama Tonga, Sammy Callahan, Chris Hero, Joey Ryan, Jerry Lynn, The Blue Meanie, Mikey Whipwreck, Jim Cornette, and of course the franchise Shane Douglas. There's nearly 30 different wrestling stars Available right now at figurestoycompany.com and wrestlingsuperstore.com. And don't forget, coming soon, the very much anticipated Queen of Extreme, Francine, is on her way to this Legends of Professional Wrestling toy line. So head on over to figurestoycompany.com today and find out more and get in on the action of these amazing action figures. So, Shane, John, as we sit here, we are ready to reveal... Who the winner was in this Figures Toy Company hashtag franchise FTC promotion. And Shane, I sent you the name earlier. This was officially pulled out of a uh, Disney's Frozen paper bag that my daughter donated to the cause. So Shane, as I hand it over to you here, do you have the results of this promotion and the winner of this contest? Jeez, you're, 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 now you've got me pulling stuff on the fly. Like, you're running out. So, hold on, let me, let me get to it here. It's, uh, so we told me beforehand that we were going to be going, that you're going to throw me like that. Uh, yes, it is the one and only Mr. Bobby Hawkins. Bobby Hawkins is the winner from, oh, my glasses on, it's a little small, uh, at ehawk78 uh, is his uh, Twitter handle. So, congratulations to Bobby Hawkins. I appreciate it. Him and everybody that uh, entered the uh, uh, the contest this week, the, the feedback was fantastic. Uh, and, and again, thank you to Figures Toy Company uh, for supplying those to, to, to give out. The to me, it's really cool that we can give something out to the fans and give them give them an opportunity to win something uh, by taking the time to listen to the podcast. And you know, a really cool way to uh, to uh, you know push this new line uh, of action figures that are being put out. If I'm not mistaken, I may be wrong on this. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think the upcoming Queen of Extreme Francine figure, that's the first action figure that Francine's ever ha- had out. Is that correct? Yes, that is correct. So I'm, I'm going to take a stab in the dark here and say that Mr. Hawkins, as well as all the people that entered for the, uh, the, uh, the franchise uh, action figure, pretty cool action figure, but let's face it, I'm, I'm a little tad behind the looks department. Uh, and the amenities department of the Queen of Extremes. So uh, 
I think that you know that's going to be a really cool item for uh, all the wrestling collectors out there. I think uh, Shane was brought in as a special consultant for uh, articulation purposes and uh, realism. <laughs> Because he's the one with the ringside seed uh, for all those uh, great years. But, John, I, I got to welcome you in here now. How many fake accounts did you create to try to win this figure yourself? <laughs> I do really want that figure. I got to be honest. I do want it. But, you know, you got to do it uh, fair and square. It's got to be above board. But I will say this if it becomes uh, available to me, I definitely will see. Well, if Shane becomes available and we'll get the figure and i want shane to autograph it because in my office i got one spot remaining for a nice figure to be signed by the franchise and i want him himself to fill that spot so shane when i get this figure i want you to sign it for me is that, is that a good deal or what done deal we'll be seeing each other at the end of this month the uh, boardwalk beatdown correct yes yes so nice. there you go done deal i love it that's great. And we're going to have a couple more promotions coming here in, in the next couple of weeks. We're going to stagger them a little bit and kind of get the interest built up. But we really appreciate everybody who participated. We really appreciate Figures Toy Company for uh, for giving us a couple of these great action figures. A uh, little bit of variety coming your way. So uh, the franchise is the first one to be given away here. And we will be in touch with Bobby Hawkins in the next day or so. Uh, and we'll get this rolling and uh, just appreciate everybody for uh, jumping on board. And it's really cool. And Shane, I want to uh, kind of want to throw it to you here with your trip that you got coming up at the end of the month, Australia. Now, Figures Toy Company being as big as they are, you never know. You might run into a couple of these figures in Australia. But I saw the tweet that you put out the other day. You kind of officially announced that you'll be heading over there with Dominic DiNucci, but what a cast of characters that you're bringing along there with you as well, with RVD and Sabu and PJ, yourself, Dominic DiNucci, Tajiri. I mean, this is going to be one hell of an invasion down under for an extreme crew, and a, uh, and the first time Dominic DiNucci is going to be back in Australia since 1968, so I'm sure that's very special for you to be a part of that journey with him. Uh, incredible. You know, when, whenever I was... Uh contacted about battle championship wrestling about going overnight they asked them uh they were kind enough to immediately say yes you know because a uh wrestling became huge in in, uh, in australia uh and southeast asia uh when uh the old uh, uh, uh jim barnett uh, of, of world-renowned wrestling fame here in america and, and uh, you know for us on the inside of the business everybody knows jim barnett and everybody does an imitation of Jim Barnett. Uh, Shane, my boy, what's going on in the dressing room now? <laughs> you know, it's a really, really classy character, uh, but a great guy and, and really knew his stuff. In his office, he had pictures hanging on the wall of him sitting on the inauguration stand. I know for Jimmy Carter, and it might have been Reagan, uh, just incredible. You know, I mean, there's but a handful of people on the face of the planet that get to sit on the inauguration stand for any president. Uh, so this guy was incredibly well connected and went to Australia and, uh, you know, uh, teamed up with a local promoter down there and, and launched a company called World Championship Wrestling. So for all those trivia buffs out there where, w, where NWA in this country became WCW in what, the late 80s, uh, that name had already been owned uh, by Jim Barnett. And Jim Barnett was with NWA, WCW slash WCW at that time in America. Uh, but that company, the name of that company, goes way back to 1964 uh, when he first launched WCW World Championship Wrestling, 
slash Australia. Uh, Dominic wasn't brought in immediately. Uh, he was not the first champion, but uh, the first champion whose name escapes me right now, the houses were, were down. They weren't really drawing strong. Uh, Australia has a huge uh, immigrant population, including a huge contingency of Italians. And so Dominic was brought in uh, and immediately the houses jumped. Uh, Dominic was literally like Bruno San Martino was here in Australia. And so for me, it just seemed like a perfect connection to take Dominic to Australia. A, he's, he's in phenomenal shape, sharp as a pack for a guy 86 years old. And I'm sure that a lot of wrestling fans that remember those days, because uh, WCW Wrestling on Channel 9, uh, Network 9 in Australia was huge television show every uh, Saturday and Sunday at noon uh, and was run until, I think, 1978 when they dropped it. And once they dropped it, of course, the company uh, uh, was pretty much done at that point. But, you know, people, a lot of wrestling fans, real uh, wrestling fans in Australia still remember uh, WCW Australia. They still remember Dominic Vinci and the cast of characters, Mario Milano and, and, uh, uh, my God, Spiros Arion and uh, Killer Kowalski and uh, King Ikea. And I mean, there was just a long slew of incredible legendary names, many of whom are no longer here. So to get the opportunity to go to Australia for the first time in about 14 years for me and to go with my mentor and trainer and, and honestly, like a second father to me, uh, Dominic Danucci, is something that I'm really, really looking forward to. And just prior to leaving for Australia, Dominic and I will be together at the boardwalk beatdown and uh, the next day in Batavia, New York. So I'm going to have a, about a two, two and a half week span uh, uh, with the, uh, the master of the, uh, air, the flying airplane spin. So I'm, I'm really, <laughs> really excited about it. I can't wait to get to the land down under and first of all, see the beautiful country, see all the great fans down there. But to do it with Dominic is just to be extra special. Now, that's really cool, and the promotion itself has been gone since the late 70s, but when you look at the roster of folks that have stopped through that version of WCW, it's uh, it's really cool to see because you almost see the guys that came through as almost, almost like they were the special attraction or they were, you know, on a, quote, vacation touring the Australian territory, and you see all the big names of the day, like Haystacks Calhoun and Andre the Giant, you know, you even see a Larry Hennig in there, right. you see... Guys like, you know, Jack Briscoe, Jerry Briscoe, you see all the guys. And it's, am I right that they would treat that almost like it was a vacation because they would be touring uh, such a foreign land like in Australia? Because obviously, and you're going to be experiencing this, that's not a very fun flight. So I can't imagine 40, 50 <laughs> years ago it was any better. So when these guys would all go over there, they would be a huge special attraction because they weren't getting these stars coming over there. Yeah, yeah. It was, it's a, you know, keep in mind with a jet today, it's it's a pretty substantial 18, 19 hour flight. Once you're in the air from America, uh, and you know, you got to sometimes take a couple jumps around here to get launched over to there. But back in those days, I would think, you know, most uh, travel, I would say at that time, was probably by prop plane, which must have made that a really unbearable trip. But because WCW Australia was such a hot commodity at the time, and because Australia, you know, is such an exotic place. For people to go, get to and get a chance to go to for professional wrestlers in this country that were used to going to, you know, Cleveland's and Buffalo's and Pittsburgh's and, you know, they were there every week in most of those towns to suddenly get to go to a place like Australia. Back then, uh, uh, most of the big stars were still going to Japan then. 
but then to get a chance to jump off and go to Australia. And keep in mind, WCW Australia used to also run Hong Kong uh, and other portions around Southeast Asia, uh, Indonesia, and, and, and other places, you know, New Zealand. And it must have been a really cool stop for those guys because, like you said, all anybody that was a notable name at that time in the industry, the Andre the Giants, Bruno San Martino, uh, all of these guys made a, got a chance to stop down there. And, uh, you know, the, the, the really sad epitaph of this whole thing is that uh, Network 9, Channel 9, like most TV stations around the world at that time, didn't archive their footage. So they had you know, so many tapes, and when, that, when they were filled, they'd start back over and tape over those, and you know, race was on there. And so there's very, very scant footage that exists today of uh, WCW Australia. Uh, I, I was able to get my hands on a documentary uh, from there, from that period, a very well done documentary. But if you watch it, it's about a two, two and a half hour documentary. But there is constant reusing of the same footage and that's the reason uh there's you know so i'm curious to find out if anybody in australia or anybody around the world out there has additional footage uh there's a couple websites up where people are looking for it to get to get it put on there to you know so the fans can get a good look at it but uh if you go back and watch it even though it was that long ago 50 years ago you watch some of this footage and it was pretty darn exciting you know it was a really by the especially by the standards of the day uh, it was really pushing the envelope, and you could tell that Jim Barnett really had his finger on the pulse of what the fans were looking for, and had a very, very successful run from 64 to 78. Um, I think Jim Barnett, if I'm not mistaken, sold out a few years before that uh, and, and got out, uh, but, you know, just an incredible opportunity for me to not only get to, to down to Australia again, but then also to be going with Dominic Danucci and you know, not just the uh, ECW stars, but Masato Tanaka, another one you forgot to mention, uh, and Sabu uh, as well. Uh, but then, you know, there's some pretty damn good Australian talent down there as well. So I'm really excited on all counts about getting to go down there again. You know, the, the, the flight aside, I'm really looking forward to getting down there and especially getting a chance to spend close to two weeks down there with Dominic and to see the country and, and uh, you know, get a chance to wrestle in Australia again is really, really exciting to me. I bet you there's guys that Dominic could tell you about that we've never heard of. I mean, none of us, you, Shane, being in the business, oh, yeah. us as being, you know, historians or fans, we would never hear these guys in a million years. And I bet you Dominic could sit there and tell you the greatest match he ever had with the guy. And you're sitting there going, well, I've never, oh. never heard of him before. Yeah, he has. In fact, when I was watching this documentary, I started thinking like, hey, this is the guy Dominic was talking about, or this is the person that he had that match with, or, uh, you know, just re really cool to see, you know, having listened to these stories for years from Dominic and now I'll be putting faces to the names and seeing it's not like there's, a, you know, seconds of footage. There's, you know, several minutes of footage of each of these guys and the way that they're laid out. And so to be putting, the, you know, the, the face to the name and it just it brings out all those stories that I've heard for decades now from Dominic uh, to life. And, uh, you know, looking forward to it. And, and hopefully I'm sure. You know, a lot of the guys, a lot of them have passed away, like Mario Milano just passed away, I think, in 16 or 14. Uh, you know, uh, King I.K., of course, gone. You know, Curtis, uh, King Curtis. Uh, you know, so many of these guys that are no longer here, but, uh, you know, there were a lot of younger guys, like young boys in the company back then that I'm sure still are. And for me, I'm excited to get a chance to meet these guys that, 
you know, were kids wrestling with Dominic and, and all those big names you mentioned. Uh, looking forward to meeting them as well. Yeah, very, uh, very cool. Can't wait to hear about that in the uh, in the coming weeks. It's going to be a uh, quite the trip for you guys. And before we get into the rest of the rundown that we have here, we have a couple topics we want to hit. You know, the worst part about doing a show like this is when you have to talk about the stuff that pains you, you know, and the stuff that's very unfortunate. Yeah. And, I mean, talk about just smacked out of left field today. I mean, and minutes after I sent you guys the run sheet, you know, we all heard the news of Jimmy Anvil Neidhart's passing. And yeah. Jimmy Anvil Neidhart, for me, was I, – I, I think I texted John. I didn't text it to you. I, I – I called him a Chad guy. I, that was just, he was one of those guys growing up. I just, I loved Jim the Evil Neidhart. I loved watching him. The intensity, the athleticism for a big guy, the promos. I mean, just somebody you didn't see. And, and obviously we could say that about so many from that era. But there was something about the Anvil that I absolutely loved. And to hear his passing at only 63 I mean, it, it, it's it's terrible, and I know not a lot of stuff has come out about it yet. I'm sure there's nothing too uh, menacing uh, that happened with this passing. It's very sad. But Shane, I mean, what's your take on this after hearing this again? It, you know, it's just terrible news, and it's just uh, it's so sad to see him go at such a young age. Uh, amen. I mean, you know, it, it's you know we're, it's like we're another one of these bad sports, right? You know, we, we've gotten used to these in the past, or as used to them as you can get. And now it seems like we're in another one of those bad down periods, you know, with how many in the last few weeks alone. Uh, but Jim, like for me, I it was one of those guys that when I first went into the WWF uh, in uh, 86 uh, to get some experience, Dominic sent me and Mick and a bunch of us up. Uh, uh, Jim was one of the guys that very quickly had such an outgoing personality and had no airs about himself. I wasn't like, I can't talk to those kids. I'm a big star, which a handful of guys were like that. Jim was, you know, came over and would ask, is there anything you need? Are you comfortable? Do you, do you, do you know who you're wrestling? And almost like he was helping direct traffic. And for young kids like us that were afraid to open our mouths, uh, that was very welcomed. And uh, I'd always gotten along fantastic with Jim. Uh, what always amazed me about it, at that time, I wasn't familiar with Jim's background, having played in the NFL with the Oakland Raiders. And, you know, look, anybody that makes it the NFL, uh, you know, that's saying something because that's, you know, that's like a sliver of the best athletes in the world make it to that level. I mean, how many people, you know, that were great college football players never cut it in the NFL. Uh, but, you know, that, that, that Jim did and had that experience and then translated that over. So few of those uh, are able to make the transition, you know, either from like shoot wrestling or other professional sports. Uh, and Jim, having been trained by Stu and, you know, having been raised around the Hart family and, you know, of course, Mary and uh, Ellie and uh, partnered up with Brett. You know, there was a lot of chemistry there. And to me, like, as a tag team, especially like in the 80s and 90s, it got to the point where, like, both guys had looked like each other and wrestled like each other and, you know, out of that sort of paradigm. But suddenly here you have this big bull of a guy with a, uh, you know, a, a, an athletic-looking wrestling machine, Brett Hart. And together, their chemistry was so perfect. You know, just they, they, you know, they, they would have some really incredible matches. Uh, you know, uh, Jim wasn't one of those guys that you ever thought of as, like, as, a, as a technician. But wrestling is so much about chemistry. And the chemistry between he and Brett was so perfect. 
and I'm sure that had to do with them, you know, being brother-in-laws and, you know, trained together and all of that. But, but there's something more that transcended there that, that, you know, sometimes the chemistry in the ring, you could hope for it and put two guys together that you think or two women together that you think is going to be fantastic. And on paper, it looks like it will be. And somehow it just doesn't translate. That was not the case of the Hart Foundation. Uh, you know, Brett and, and Jim had an incredible chemistry and Jim really was able to evoke a character on screen that was compelling to watch, you know, whether it be him pulling his beard or that laugh that he had and the way he stood there. You'd listen to, even in that era when, when wrestling was sort of going, you know, sort of towards the entertainment side, you know, you believed Jim Neidhart when he said something. You be, If he said he was going to kick your ass, you believed that he was going to kick your ass. And, you know, the, the difference, like you said about his promos, like for me, I was always a guy that really loved watching promos and the ones that were good at it. Uh, Jim's one of those guys that you don't typically put in, you start talking about great promo guys, guys on the stick. But if you go back and you watch his promos in the system that was the WWF at that time, Jim D'Angelo Neidhart was perfect. And the Hart Foundation, I believe, is one of the biggest reasons that the WWF then went to the heights that it did because that whole generation, but those guys stood out among that generation of incredible performers. Whether it's pulling on the goatee, whether it's the laugh, whether it's the sunglasses, or there was de- there was something with his delivery. It, it was somewhat of like a, yeah. uh, you know, like maniacal, like this guy was legitimately crazy. You didn't know where he was going. He would start off kind of low and then he'd get a little high and then he'd come back down and then he'd tug on the beard. You know, it was something to it. And when they would do their promo separately, and that's what I love and I miss to death about those syndicated shows is you would get those special things like, hey, well, tonight in, you know, Lowell, Massachusetts, Jim the Anvil Neidhart's going to be taking on the mighty Hercules. Let's hear from the Anvil. And you get to see him separated yeah. from Brett, and you got to see what he could really do. But what I want to get from John here now is because John is, you know, the Brett Hart aficionado and, is, you know, can tell you everything about Brett Hart's career from top to bottom and watches him like a, like a hawk in old matches and what he did in the ring, but the perfect compliment to Bret Hart as a tag team was Jim the Evil Neidhart, John. So let's get your take in here about uh, Jim the Evil Neidhart and this passing. Well, the thing about the anvil is, and, and as far as Bret with that little twist, Bret would say he was so uncomfortable himself doing promos that anvil kind of carrying the load just put the ease off of him, you know, put him at ease and made him more comfortable doing promos. So it just kind of shows you that, wow, Brett's like one of the greatest of all time. He wasn't comfortable doing No, he wasn't. And Anvil kind of had to bring him along and, and kind of relax him a bit and show him, you know, have a little fun with the promos and, and you know, uh, be that larger-than-life character. So I thought that's a cool little tidbit with those two. But as far as tag matches and stuff, my God, just that team is just so perfect. People would say, oh, Anvil's not that good of a worker. No, he was a great worker, and especially the way he was used with Brett. Brett was more the technician. He was more the power guy. The slingshot shoulder block was an awesome move. Just, you know, his power move just was a perfect complement to Brett, whether it's against the Brain Busters, Demolition, the Bulldogs, the Rockers, so many damn good matches the Hart Foundation have. Arguably the greatest tag team of all time. I'd say one of the greatest tag teams of all time for sure. Yeah, there's no doubt about that. And, you know, the thing that most people wouldn't realize from watching Jim on television for all these decades uh, was that Jim was a, uh, a, a, a very intense listener. So, like, when you'd sit and talk to him, he would be sitting there listening intently to every word you were saying, pulling, tugging on his on, on the goatee and 
listening. And, you know, when you were done, he would look at you and ask you some really uh, prescient question, follow up on what you just said, you know. So I so different from the character he played on screen, uh, you know, that, again, I don't think many people would realize that or probably be surprised to hear that about Jim. But uh, I always took Jim as being a very intense guy. Uh, but, you know, not so intense that, you know, he was just ready to start jumping over, you know, you're in the middle of a sentence and he's going to jump over his question. He would wait almost like in a polite fashion until you were finished. And then he would shake his head and like, like thinking through what you just said. And then he'd ask you some really on the mark question about what you had just said, you know, just like to underscore the fact that I heard what you said and, and now I'm going to follow up with this question. Uh, you know, just very different from his on, on-screen character. Uh, that's really cool. Now, Shane, before we get into some of the stuff we have on the run sheet, did you guys ever work, you and the Anvil? Did you ever get in there and scrap with the uh, with the big ox? No, never had a singles match with him. Uh, I think, if I'm not mistaken, I may be wrong on this, but I seem to think that whenever I was filming with uh, Marty for the uh, the new rockers when Sean was off hurt with a knee injury, uh, I think we had a, a dark house match with them. Uh, I believe for some reason it scratched in the back of my head, but no, we never worked in a long programs, although we were oftentimes in, in the same company as one another, uh, never had the privilege of working a, a uh, uh, any kind of program with them. And, you know, before we move on, I just want to say like to, to Nadia and the entire family, uh, Brett, uh, uh, for everybody, I mean, it, my, my deepest and sincerest condolences go out to the family. Uh, 63 years old is, and by my stretch, uh, way too young uh, to, to pass on. And, you know, for a larger-than-life character like Jim was, uh, you know, for all wrestling fans, uh, that, you know, so many of us grew up watching and loving wrestling at that time. And Jim D'Anville Neidhart was one of those characters that's really stamped on your brain uh, my, my sincerest condolences to the entire family and, and all of his fans. Absolutely. And we'll be dedicating Friday's episode of Two Man Power Trip to the Anvil. And what we like to do is we like to play a promo. We like to send them off uh, into the sunset by playing their theme music one last time. So we will be dedicating Friday's show to the Anvil. Uh, and definitely nice. never, never, ever, ever forgotten. Ever. And, and that is... For damn sure, because uh, if you did, we're going to have to drop that anvil, baby, right on top of your head. Yeah. <laughs> just, wanted to throw that, just wanted to throw that one out there. So now, as we get into the, what we got here on the run sheet, I always knew when we got to do this show with you, Shane, there's going to be a lot of repeat stuff that does come up. Because when you have some of the monumental things that you've done in your career, obviously it's going to come up in different facets and different forms. And you know, because we've talked about it at great length. We have gone into meticulous detail about the NWA title throwdown, including, if you want to go back and listen, folks, in the archive, we did an over two-hour episode dedicated to the whole entire night. We're not just talking Shane's matches. We're talking about the entire night, the buildup, what went on backstage, how the television was produced, everything A to the Z, as the Iron Sheik would say. But what came out this week was an interesting little wrinkle, and got to bring this up to you because it, it definitely caught my eye, and I got jumped on the horn and mentioned it to John right away. A fan asked Dave Meltzer on Twitter last week. It said, Dave Meltzer, who besides Shane Douglas and Paul Heyman knew he was going to throw the NWA title in the trash, you know, quote-unquote, and give the speech? Dave Meltzer's response was, Todd Gordon, me, 
Not sure who else. So in our two-hour-plus episode we did, and subsequent times we've talked to you about it, I don't recall you ever mentioning Dave Meltzer's name uh, by any stretch of the imagination, but we do know that Mr. Heyman may have had a line to Dave Meltzer. Now, (laughs) would you be surprised if Heyman shared that kind of sensitive information with, uh, with Meltzer, you know, especially with what was riding on that moment? Uh, a, no, I did not know that that was the first one. When I saw the run sheet today and I went back and read the link, uh, that was the first I'd heard of that. Uh, in talking with Todd Gordon in the past uh, about it, Todd had never mentioned it. So I'm guessing was probably equally surprised to hear that. Um, but yeah, it's, it's not that Paul may have had. Paul definitely did have uh, a connection to Meltzer and, you know, in hindsight, you know, saw that I'm sure as a as a asset to be able to disseminate information and utilize it. But you know, put yourself again. Like I always say with history, everything is time relevant. So you know, I can't look back and say somebody that you know used to eat, you know, uh, uh, haggis. You know, it's horrible because they took a poor lamb and took his lungs out and did this and did that, you know, and cruel to the animal. Uh, because sitting here in 2018, obviously culture is very different than it was then. History is time relevant, and you must look at it through the lens of that time. At that time in the wrestling business, Dave Meltzer was seen as an enemy, somebody that should not be confided with because the the general belief was whatever you tell him, he's going to put in a sheet to make money on, and ergo, not wise to go and tell something, especially something as... uh, as big as that was, even at the time, but it would become in, in the history of wrestling. Had that leaked out, it could have really, really flushed an incredible seminal moment for ECW. So I, I would be surprised if that were the case, uh, that Paul would do that. But knowing how Paul did talk, in fact, when I first met Dave, uh, it was the same night that uh, uh, Lance Storm started with ECW, and we were waiting in line at the end of the night for our checks. And, uh, there was, you know, smaller, you know, sort of buff guy with curly hair with a leather jacket on in front of me. And I'm like trying to get a look, see who it is. And I'm, I can't make him out. And I looked at somebody, I said, like, what lips? like, who is that? And they looked at, like, looked around and looked back at me and said, Dave Meltzer. At first of all, I was shocked that he was in our dressing room because like I said, at that time and moment in history and wrestling, uh, Dave was sort of a persona non grata in our business. Uh, my first thought was, what the hell is he doing here? Um, you know, and, and sitting here listening. But then, you know, as, as time went by and you began to realize how, you know, Paul was, uh, uh, Paul can be like a woman when it comes to, to information, you know, like, uh, you know, wanted to be the first to tell it or whatever. Uh, and so it didn't surprise me that, if true, that he would have shared something like that with Dave. Uh, in hindsight, you know, thankfully, if, if Dave did know, and did not share that. I kudos to, to Dave Meltzer that you know that he understood that you know how much was riding on that. And again, if true, it, it would tell me that Dave could see then that ECW was going to have some kind of legs. It was going to be around for a while, and you know none of us had a crystal ball at that point. But uh, you know that show sort of set something that you could feel that ECW was was launching. You know, that, again, no guarantee that we were going to make it or become what it became. But you could tell by watching that show that, A, Paul had a 
really good finger on the pulse of the wrestling fans, especially the ECW fans, uh, was bringing something completely revolutionary to America. Uh, again, go back and look in time at wrestling, what it had become, and the two big companies at that point. And clearly there was a necessity for the pendulum to be swung back uh, towards the wrestling side, and ECW was that pendulum. Um, so I would be, in hindsight, you know, not surprised. And like I said, kudos to Dave that he did keep it under that, if he did know. Uh, but again, putting myself in that moment in time, I, I personally, as a booker, a wrestler, somebody involved on the inside, would never show my hand to anybody outside, uh, exclusive of the participants involved. Like I, like I talked about whenever the whole thing with the Shawn Michaels uh, belt forfeit, that uh, uh, Razor Ramon knew anything about that really sat wrong with me because where I came from in the business, the way I was taught, the only people that should have known that would be Vince, Sean, and I. Not me, Sean, Vince, and a bunch of these other guys. Uh, there's no reason for them to know that. Uh, and really, there was no reason for Dave Meltzer to know that prior to it happening. So I guess for the, the only person that could really uh, either substantiate or invalidate that comment would be Paul. Uh, but I would be surprised if Paul would have shown his hand to that degree. But again, uh, you know, Paul would have to be the only person that could answer that definitively. Todd Gordon had never mentioned it to me, and I certainly never heard that in any of our conversations what I saw on the run sheet today. It's almost like you could equate it to, uh, you know, the Russian intelligence or, you know, like the secrets uh, being traded with the foreign enemy. It's nothing in, in 1993, 1994, 1995, 1996 and beyond up to about the early 2000s where if information like that's being shared, you know, it's going to take a little bit of time for it to reach more people because it was more of a publication Versus now, if that was 2018, yeah. forget about it. It would have been if he knew that, or if that it would have been, it would have been out. And who knows? Uh, Dennis Carluzzo could have had somebody shooting on you by the time your hands starting to go down, you know. And you said you didn't know what the reaction was going to be, but I shudder to think that right. if if that information was shared so delicately, and if Dave Meltzer is being you know truthful with sharing that on his end. Who else might have known about it? You know what I mean? Maybe we're all uh, in the dark here. Maybe all these years, Paul worked you and said, hey, you know, yep, me, you, Todd, we're, we're the only ones. Oh, but Dave Meltzer knows, and uh, oh, that guy over there knows, and this guy over here knows. We're sworn, sworn to secrecy. Sure. And it sort of lifts the veil, like you said, about, you know, Scott Hall knowing what was going on in the, the Intercontinental title forfeiture. But why? If it was not having to do with him immediately – what's the point of it? So it's kind of funny. It almost makes you second guess certain things and you play a little armchair quarterback. Well, no, no question. Again, put yourself back in, in that moment in time, you know, from our purview, uh, the way we perceived uh, uh, Dave Meltzer was he's taking inside information that only we should know and he's monetizing it for himself. It wasn't like as far as I'm, uh, you know, I know, that Dave Meltzer was saying, okay, well, you tell me some kind of scoop and I'll give you a, you know, a point on, on what I sell that week or whatever. I don't think that would, would have been done. If so, it would have been a stupid thing for Dave to do. I never understood and for any reason anybody sharing outside the dressing room. Like I, again, I was trained by old timers and was, you know, started the old school of wrestling. So, you know, the magician doesn't get up on stage and say, hey, everybody, 
later on tonight when I saw the lady in half, here's how I do it. So don't worry, I'm not really cutting the lady in half. Um, there's some information that should be protected. You know, this whole thing, you know, since we've exposed the business, we've been through this how many times on the show? Uh, you know, the, the blowing of the kayfabe, uh, you know, what many thought would kill the business didn't at that time. But you now have to ask yourself after now, how long of this, you know, every, you know, week you see somebody online, you know, disseminating information and, you know, analyzing it as if, you know, they, they're the only person on the planet that has a, has a take on this and their opinion matters more than yours. Uh, you know, there's no need for it. You know, there's, there's no reason for like, for instance, you walk into a movie, it's like Halloween, for instance, John Carpenter doesn't need to come up on the screen and say, I am John Carpenter, the writer and director of Halloween. Uh, nobody is dying on screen tonight. All the blood you see is just Cairo syrup with, uh, the food coloring added and the knives are really rubber and, you know, so don't don't worry in your seat there. Just enjoy the movie. It would have made that show a, a, a comedy as opposed to have you on the edge of your seat and ready to jump out of your seat every time Jason uh, would would you know jump out at you. Um, there sometimes it's better for the entertainment value for there to be surprise and shock. Uh, and thank God if Dave again big if asterisk next to it if Dave knew and didn't disseminate it. Thank you to him for that, that he didn't, uh, you know, to try to get money off of it because it could have killed what became, like I said, a seminal moment for launching ECW on the trajectory that it later took on. Uh, had that happened that night and that not occurred, you know, you, you do play the what if and you said Monday morning quarterback, would ECW have remained part of the NWA and would, would we have been relegated as a junior partner for the rest of that time? Would ECW have, have uh, you know, escalated to the point that it did? Would ECW have had the opportunity to change wrestling like it did for those seven years? Uh, there are so many what-ifs that come off that. I just stand by my original comment that there would be no reason to share that with anybody outside of uh, that very tight that group. Todd Ock, for obvious reasons, was the owner of the company at the time. Paul, the guy that created it, and me as the guy that was going to do it. No one else outside of that triumvirate should have known. All right, as we go around the world here, Shane, the huge news, obviously, of the last week or so has been that Ring of Honor and New Japan Pro Wrestling has sold out MSG. We talked a little bit about this, but I just want to go into a little bit more detail about it because it's such a huge thing. You know, you sell 18,000 seats, you sell it out, I don't care what time of year it is. It's amazing because yeah. it's not WWE selling at MSG. And another show hasn't run MSG in you know, God knows was it says it was I think it was 1957. There was the uh, Manhattan Wrestling League, which was owned by uh, Tootsmont, who also mm-hmm. helped Vince McMahon Sr. run the WWF when they ran MSG, and they started running in 1963. So I mean, it, the history goes back basically 60 years plus. It's just crazy that somebody else has come in and, and sold that MSG. So I just wanted your take on this because this is crazy. Is Vince McMahon pissed off right now, or what? I'm I'm sure he's got to be, uh, because you know that building, what they would do, so the so the listeners out there understand, they had an agreement with MSG as they did with many venues that they run, uh, that nobody can run a wrestling event in there for X amount of days before and X amount of days after. So say if it's 30 days or 60 days before and after, 
Well, that means that if you have four or five shows there per year, you, you've locked the building down. Nobody else can run a wrestling show in there. And they, and they maintain that. Let's face it. What was a Grill Monsoon called it? The Mecca of professional wrestling. That was why. That was their the home. Uh, you know, you know, people used to euphemistically call WWE New York. When you're going to work in New York, uh, that's why. Because of Madison Square Garden. And, you know, Madison Square Garden is a building that transcends wrestling. It transcends boxing. It transcends all entertainment forms and sports because it truly is in, in the, the cap, entertainment capital of the world in New York City. So, you know, the, the fact that they would have let that go, I'd seen some, you know, online uh, discussion about it, people saying, well, uh, Hunter and, and Stephanie wanted to run uh, another building that was in Manhattan or somewhere. Uh, Brooklyn. Uh, Brooklyn. It doesn't make sense to me, you know, because MSG is such a notable part of the WWF, WWE history that it would have been very easy, like somebody had mentioned on the run sheet for them to run an NXT show in there, a Hall of Fame event, uh, something in there that would have continued that streak. Uh, for, but that said, we know that it has now been broken. That 60-year stretch has now been broken. And kudos to uh, NWA uh, or uh, uh, New Japan and Ring of Honor uh, ha having gotten their foot in that door and for doing so well. But I, I, I'm taking a step back here and looking at like the industry as a whole and trying to see the trees through the forest. Uh, we saw the All In Show sell out Sears Center in Chicago in 26 minutes. Kenny Omega ran a show in Florida at some casino that sold out lickety split. Uh, I think 7,000 seats or something. Now Ring of Honor and New Japan, you know, breaking that that uh, monopoly in Madison Square Garden and selling out uh, in pretty quick fashion. That tells me that the, the wrestling industry in America is ready for a reboot and it's ready for a real run at somebody competing with WWE, whether it's Ring of Honor slash New Japan, whether it's New Japan, whether it's some upstart, some unknown entity, there's clearly a, a, an audience out there that has grown weary of sports entertainment, quotation marks around it. As everybody knows, I, I discern greatly between sports entertainment and professional wrestling day and night, you know, black and white, two very separate entities. And to me, when you see the precipitous drop in WWE ratings, house show attendance, I don't know if somebody, if you saw the guy, saw the picture uh, from SmackDown uh, the other night, uh, paltry is, is probably too kind of word. Uh, you know, 70% empty building it looked uh, from that picture that I saw. Um, you know, and somebody responded back on Twitter saying, well, the house show wasn't TV. And, you know, I... <laughs> With all due respect, I remember the days that, you know, house shows, whether it be NWA, WCW, or WWF, WWE, the house shows would sell out. Uh, I know that the WWE business uh, model was predicated on selling out or near selling out their venues, which would bring them up to black for the week. They, 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 about two or three years old, the number was $1.4 million a week to transport that show from A to B to C to D. So selling those houses out or coming close, house shows or TVs, uh, brought them back to, to black. Then they made their profit off of what was once a $37 per head 
merchandise ratio. So in Pittsburgh PPG, take 18,800, multiply it by 37, not a bad take for the night, all profit. Uh, so now that you see those numbers down, uh, I think the last number I heard was 4,400 average. Not, you know, that's less than a quarter in PPG in Pittsburgh. And now the number of merchandise number per head has dropped below $11 per head. So, you know, all things being equal, all those numbers being equal, transporting that show around A to B, and you're now selling one quarter of the house or less and getting uh, less than a third of what you used to per head uh, per capita merchandise sales. You can begin to do the math, and Jethro with his gazintas could figure out this uh, ain't going to be good at the end on the bottom line. Uh, so clearly there's a huge opportunity and you can see the fans with all in with Omega show in, in Florida. Now it's ring of honor, new Japan show at, at, at Madison square garden, aside from making history first time in 60 plus years. Uh, it's a huge, huge, uh, opportunity for everybody out there for the industry. Like the old saying goes, a rising tide rises all ships. Uh, I remember the days where there were three big companies and, you know, an awful lot of people were employed and making damn good livings in this, in this industry, whereas now we've seen that huge drop-off because of the monopolization by sports entertainment. As I've been saying for the last 15-plus years, wrestling fans haven't stopped loving wrestling, and they may have been sort of distracted for a short while with sports entertainment, but clearly they've grown tired of that and are now looking for something else. Otherwise, Ring of Honor New Japan, Kenny Omega Show, uh, all in, they'd all be, you know, pushing up daisies trying to get people in those buildings. Clearly, that's not the case. So I think it's it bodes incredibly well for the industry at large. Maybe not so much for the sports entertainment guys, but for the industry at, at large, I think it bodes incredibly uh, uh, fortuitous for the future for the business. You gotta love it if you're a wrestling fan that uh, the industry is not quite as dead as, you know, previously reported, given the fact that All In is selling out, given the fact that MSG sells out with New Japan and ROH. You know, it's a pretty uh, great time to be a fan as far as that is concerned, because if you're watching WB, you, you've got to be scratching your head most of the time. But I feel like Vince, I guess Vince is, is to blame partially, you know, putting his uh, eye off the prize for a bit, if you will. But he's got to be killing himself inside right pal you know uh, his famous line hey pal you know how's it going pal he's got to be yeah. pissed. he's got to be pissed right because his father well, set quite yeah. a precedent with that square garden and they're doing the trendy thing going to brooklyn oh look at this cute new arena and you know or not new now but newer arena and it's trendy and, and triple h and stephanie seem to fall in with that crowd right he's, he's got to be pissed well there, there's no doubt in my mind he is but you know, again, you know, just stop and take a look. Take whatever episode of Raw you want from the last three years and type it up, write it up, pull it off the internet, whatever you want to do. Look at it on paper and ask yourself, could you have booked something better with that, with the talent they have in addressing at that time? Just look at the run. Most of this stuff on paper looks horrific to me. Uh, like I've talked before about how, you know, now granted, we had one hour compared to three, but I used to watch Paul Hamill when I was doing the commentary with Joey agonize over slicing frames, you know, out of the show. So you understand frames are not discernible to the human eye. 
but he would agonize over that because there was something tiny in those frames that he wanted left in the show, but we had to get it down to the 46 minute uh, criteria that we had for, the, for air at that time. Uh, when you look at these WWE shows and you see, you know, all the, you know, here's Joe Blow walking down the hallway in the back and looking over his shoulder, and here's somebody playing a guitar, and here's somebody doing this or that, or here's a car pulling up outside or leaving, or here's somebody dumping a truck over. And you ask yourself, like, what is the, Goal of that. The goal of it should, of anything that makes hair should be it should interest the viewer, it should lure the viewer in, and make the viewer ask a lot of questions. I doubt anybody's asking a question of here's Shane Douglas walking down the back hallway, uh, or here's you know whoever playing an instrument. Um, you know, it seems to me that they're taking an awful lot of stuff in the kitchen sink and just dumping into that show to fill up time. If that's the case, cut all that irrelevant stuff out and cut the show down to one hour or two hours. Clearly, three hours, if you're going to dump everything in the kitchen sink in, is too long. But on paper, to a trained eye, especially to somebody as long as mine, it looks like garbage on paper. I would never say Vince is stupid. Or, you know, our difference is aside, Vince is a damn bright guy. If I know that, I, I have zero doubt that Vince can see that, and yet it makes air. Why? Has he just lost the eye of the tiger does he not have that fire burning anymore uh i don't know i haven't worked with the guy in in, in quite a while but the vincent man that i used to work for was an inferno of energy and you know making damn sure that the show didn't have irrelevant stuff in it and i just don't see that anymore like i said on paper any of those shows you can pull out from the last couple of years probably longer than that looks like garbage so how did it make air? Clearly, Vince had to rubber stamp it and say, okay, or it would not have made air. Um, this has to go down as one of the same things as to how do you allow the McMahon family and the, and the organization that has dominated that building, monopolized that building for six plus decades. Uh, boy, if that was just a faux pas and a mistake on their part, it was a bad one. And if they think now that they can move on without MSG, um, I'm sure they can. The question is, what do they give up? And most wrestling fans are creatures of habit. Uh, I, it's why I took my son to the last show at the Pittsburgh Civic Arena. I wanted him to see where his grandfather took me when I was his age. Um, most wrestling fans, I'm going to go way out on a limb here and take a stab in the dark and say, most wrestling fans in New York City and the surrounding area probably think of Madison Square Garden as the, like Gorilla said, mecca of professional wrestling. This is where the WWE runs. And suddenly now there's someplace else. Uh, stupid. On, on paper, it looks bad. In practice, it looks even worse. But it's given a huge opportunity to, uh, uh, to bring what I think is the hottest product right now, one out there in, in the industry, New Japan Pro Wrestling. Um, it's compelling. It's exciting. It's interesting. They have incredible talent on there. And now they've got a foothold in New York City, uh, WWE's Mecca, the back, the backyard of the WWE. So, uh, like I said a second ago, fortuitous things for the business. A lot of good stuff coming. It's amazing. In 2018, Vince takes his eye off the prize. New Japan sells out. 
MSG, obviously with ROH's help. I mean, they basically sell MSG. If anyone's following New Japan, they just had the G1 tournament, G128, the Climax tournament. Hiroshi Tanahashi ends up winning it. Just they're on fire right now. If anybody hasn't seen it, there's so many amazing matches in that tournament, within that tournament. It's just crazy, and they just somehow top each other each year. Shane, do you follow it at all, whether New Japan World or on the Internet? Do you follow New Japan at all? I know you have previously said on Twitter and even to us in, in private that you thought they were definitely the best wrestling going today. Do you follow any of it like closely as far as you know who won the G1, stuff like that? Not nearly as closely as you do, but you know, obviously being online, uh, as, as you know, much more now than I've ever been. You know, you clearly run into it, and you know, like what first captured my attention was the whole Omega Jericho angle. That's what really started getting me, you know, getting my eye peeled back that direction. Uh, I, I I don't watch it nearly as closely as you do. I just spend all time. Uh, you know, I'm pulled in so many other directions, whether it be on the road with my kids, uh, different projects that I'm working on. But, you know, I have to admit that for the first time in a long time in watching the New Japan product, not just the, uh, uh, the Americans that are going in, but also the, uh, the Japanese talent and the other talent from around the world. Uh, to me, it's a damned exciting show. When I, you know, watch the, uh, the playback uh, of the uh, Jericho Omega match, I said, Man, that interested me so much and was so good that I started watching other matches on the card and, you know, was really taken back. You know, as we talked about uh, privately, uh, just in watching the show, there's so many elements of it that take you back, you know, and all be in an updated fashion. But you can clearly see that uh, that the, the chain wrestling and the spots and the, the building of the excitement, the, the heat and the comebacks, uh, they're all still present in New Japan, you know, and, you know, we've heard the, Stories, you know, ubiquitous stories coming out of WWE that, you know, that they wanted different formulas and wire heels, double feeding in a hot tag and, and things like that. You know, questioning the basic sound uh, practices of our industry to supposedly, I guess, think you're creating something different. Well, New Japan is clearly showing that with every event they do and, you know, getting super strong. I mean, they've always been strong in Japan. But now you see them running here in America and, and, and these, these shots like Madison Square Garden. Now that's definite proof, you know, just, a, you know, stamped with uh, approved at the top that they're, they're viable. And viability, especially in the backyard of the WWE, can't be a good thing, especially as all their numbers trend southward. Now, I think there's, the only thing that I could see that positive coming out of this event is had they not sold out, had they been one person under a sellout and couldn't officially declare a sellout, then Vince would say, yeah, but they didn't sell out. You know, that would have been a saving grace. And I'm betting that that's what he was betting on, you know, that it wouldn't sell out. It would come close, do really well by, you know, by independent standards, but not sell out. Now that's been broken. So the, you know, I, I saw the back and forth for using uh, people saying that, you know, maybe uh, he'll see it as, yeah, the the competition is good, and like the Vincent man that I know abhors competition. Um, it's why he has been so predatory, you know, over the years to anybody like with WCW. It wasn't a question of beating them; he had to break their back. Uh, uh, same with the ECW. 
you know, I go and I, and I mentioned that earlier on Twitter about, you know, as soon as I knew that Vince was involved, I told Paul, in the end, he'll screw you. It may not be today or tomorrow, but at some point when he sees it necessary, he'll take advantage and he will stab you in the back, which is exactly what he did. Um, so I don't see Vince as seeing somebody else doing well in the business as being in any way positive in the way he thinks. Kind of love that New Japan is kind of, you know, hitting their stride, kind of now dominating more in the U.S. as they kind of coming over here and doing more shows and more shows. And you mentioned getting a guy like Jericho and having a few with Omega and then, and then Knights. I mean, he's really been stepping up his game. What do you think about Jericho recently saying that he has kind of changed his mind and wrestling for somebody outside of WWE in the United States? Do you think that Jericho possibility that he'll wrestle MSG for New Japan? Uh, possibly, I don't know his deal is with uh, you know where he sits right now contractually with WWE. Um, you know, I wouldn't think that Vince would be too happy with him working on that show. Uh, but then again, you know, like where he sits contractually, I don't know. But if, if, if Vince sees him as being uh, staying relevant on somebody else's dime. You know that you know that he knows that he can pull him in and you know plug him into any you know promo or event or pay per view that he needs moving forward like a WrestleMania. Um, but you know I, I don't know. I, I just I would be surprised because we talked before we started on the show that you know I think Jericho still by and large uh, butters his bread with WWE. I mean, he's doing, doing great with the Fozzie stuff and you know obviously making a huge name for himself. Uh, with his music and his his forays with New Japan, uh, that you know him going to work in Vince's backyard. Vince is a lot like Donald Trump in the sense that he he lives and breathes and dies on loyalty. So uh, I I you know I'd have to really think that one through, but I I don't see Vince as being too happy if Jericho were to work that show. We've been talking about Jericho a little bit kind of on and off just because of the Gary Wolf episode with the heat wave and the four-way TV title match, things like that. But I don't know if we've ever really gotten into your thoughts on Jericho as a worker, not only then, but now, or maybe his whole career. Are you a fan of Jericho? Or, you know, you appreciate the, the greatness of this Jericho? What are your thoughts on, yes. on, on him as a performer? Well, when he first came to ECW, I was totally unfamiliar with him. Uh, you know, back then, I, I, you know, as busy as I was, teaching school, going to night school, preparing for medical school, wrestling all weekend, lesson plans on Sunday when I would get home. I didn't have a lot of time to, to watch stuff outside of that. But when he first came to ECW, the A, he was a good-looking kid, uh, well-built, athletic as hell. Then we got to be, become really good friends because we both share an affinity uh, for Kiss. And, uh, you know, we started talking. That's like how we really sort of connected at first. And then I had the privilege of working quite often with him in ECW. And I loved working with him uh, because he was so agile. And, you know, again, at that time, a baby face, that's a good looking kid, you know, that all you had to do is just mount up a little bit of heat on him. And you knew he, he could hit, explode something out of that into a comeback or, a, you know, a high spot. And it made it really easy. You know, when you're a heel and you have somebody like that that can get sympathy and is so explosive and so athletic. You could you could make it work, and you know Chris was fantastic to work with. 
he's a little snug, which I loved. Uh, that's how ECW was. And, you know, he, he didn't fail to deliver in that department. Uh, but, you know, he also had a great head on his shoulders for the business. So, you know, when I am talking or going to be working with somebody, I always want their input and help stimulate my thinking. As you know, Obviously, he's going to know his repertoire far better than I would. What, where does he want to plug in? What, where does he see this particular spot or this particular point of the match going? And, you know, a lot of guys will say, well, I'll do whatever you want or they just want to follow your lead. Uh, Chris always had great ideas. Chris was always willing to, to, to put forward, not in an obnoxious or abrasive way, you know, in a, in a collaborative way, you know, to say, uh, okay, well, how about if we did this or did that? And, you know, I always say two heads are better than one. And when you had a kid that was as uh, uh, capable as Chris was, that, you know, that kind of chemistry really lends well in, in the ring, you know, and on camera. Uh, I love working with Chris. I haven't, I don't get a chance to see Chris or speak with Chris nearly as much as we used to, but, uh, I count Chris as a very good friend and I've always been a big fan of his work since I got to know him in ECW. Jericho is kind of, I guess you would say the number one free agent in the game. If you think about it, obviously he's the current new Japan pro wrestling intercontinental champion. So there's gotta be some sort of ties there. Obviously, he's got some dates left with them. He claims those dates would be in Japan, but you never know. Now it seems like he's opening his mind to possibly wrestling here in the States. That would be a huge, huge coup. They almost, you can kind of say they don't need him to wrestle at MSG. It's already sold out. You don't need him to wrestle, but still be a huge, huge coup for them. Now there's rumors going around saying, even Bleacher Report's reporting it, saying that Jericho is destined for Impact Wrestling. I kind of think it's all to do about nothing. I don't think that he would go there. Do you think that Jericho would end up in Impact Wrestling with this new shakeup and them kind of just, you know, having open relationships with a lot of different wrestlers now? Uh, I'd be surprised for the same reason that you just said. Uh, you know, the when you have your foot in the like I mentioned a few seconds ago with uh, the loyalty factor with Vince. Um, I would think that if Jericho would at this point you know, move somewhere else and, and, you know, especially here in the States, that that would pretty much seal his future dealings with WWE. Uh, keep in mind that, you know, even though the WWE may not uh, have, you know, big day-to-day, week-to-week, month-to-month plans with uh, Jericho, the Chris Jerichos are the backbone, the spine that make up uh, WrestleMania every year. That's why Vince has to constantly go to the Undertakers and the Steve Austins and the Bret Hart's and the, uh, you know, uh, Chris Jericho and the McFoley, because those are the name uh, brands, the marquee names that are drawing, driving the sell uh, or the draw in those in that pay per view, and that's a critical pay per view for them every year. Uh, it's sort of like when you go back and you look at, uh, you know, Boston came out with their first album right in 1976 and sold like a gazillion and one copies. And then the second one came out and sold like six million uh, or eight million, whatever. It was still an astronomical number, but because it didn't exceed what the first one did, it was considered a like a flop by standard. Uh, you know, I think the same thing with WrestleMania. You know, it's you can't go into WrestleMania and you know not have a sellout, even if you have to pay for it. You can't go into WrestleMania and you know, have a, a lackluster show or or not a lot of oomph and punch going into it. And every year, Vince has to rely on those marquee names. So, 
you know, even though he, he like I said, he doesn't have a lot day to day, week to week, month to month with someone like Chris. You know, Chris is clearly a marquee name, and in many respects, probably even you know at the top of that pack because he can still get in the ring and can still go. And as we saw with the match with Kenny Omega, can still deliver damn good performances. So uh, I would think that the idea of him jumping ship going somewhere else right now, unless there's something I'm unaware of, I don't see Impact Wrestling as having the money that it would take to get him over there, even if it was like one or two appearances. Uh, I just don't think, I agree with your assessment, I, I just don't see Chris as making that jump, A, because I don't see Impact being able to uh, offer a big chunk of money to him for any per- protracted period of time. And I don't see Chris as going out and flushing the loyalty factor with WWE and Vince. So I'd be surprised, really shocked if that were to come to pass. Now, I wanted to mention this kind of before as we were talking about MSG, but I do want to talk about it now. And your run as Dean Douglas in 95 and you not wrestling MSG um, at that point. I know it's been said by uh, Shawn Michaels, which is kind of ironic and hilarious at the same time. Like, oh, oh Shane uh, faked an injury or something, knowing that uh, he himself is fake. <laughs> you know, so many injuries to, to avoid wrestling or jobbing somebody or something. But in 95, they, <laughs> in your tenure there, you're basically there from July 95 until, well, ju- I think it was about July 29th to about uh, November 24th of 95. And you basically, in early... 96 officially go back to ECW. So 8 12 95, October 6 95, 11 25 95, but I think you're gone at that point. How could we didn't wrestle in August or October at MSG? Good question. I can't remember the exact. Uh, uh, I, back then, keep in mind, they were running multiple towns. Uh, so I was probably on like the, the B or C towns, and they were running two or three at that time. Uh, I don't know. I mean, in hindsight, there's so much about that whole run that just never added up and, and never made sense. I mean, we've talked about the pay already, which was absurdly low. Uh, so, you know, why they wouldn't want to have me, especially, I know at one point Vince was, you know, looking at big things between Sean and I uh, that, you know, clearly that soured someplace along the line and you know, I, I think most of the fans out there can understand and I, I know exactly what happened. But, um, you know, that why wouldn't be on those cards? It was the same reason, like, when we would go uh, to uh, Honolulu, they would typically run Honolulu and Anchorage on the same day or close in time. So half the crew would be in Honolulu and the other half would be in Anchorage. I was always on the Honolulu loop. And, you know, not that I didn't want to be in Honolulu, but, uh, you know, I'd never been to this day. I've never been to Alaska and really, really wanted to get up there at least once or twice just to, 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 to say you've been there and to see the place. And uh, I was always on the other uh, other uh, loop in Honolulu, so which was also a pretty tough uh, run because I, the one time I remember I, I left Pittsburgh on a Monday, flew from Pittsburgh to Miami. That night from Miami, we flew to Los Angeles, wrestled in Los Angeles that day, flew to, or after the show, flew from there to Honolulu, wrestled there that night, flew from Honolulu to San Diego, wrestled there, and then that night, Honolulu back to Pittsburgh. So in five, in a five-night loop, 
I was in a hotel room zero times. Uh, you know, it was a lot easier because you're younger then, but it was still a pretty tough run. You know, not getting your head, let your head put down on a pillow anytime in five, six days and running all those across the time zone flights made it really difficult, you know, so, uh, uh, you know, arduous, you know, so, you know, yeah, I would have liked to have been an anchorage on some of those, but you know, they, they were running multiple pounds back then. The only thing I could think of is I'm sure I wasn't going to get home on those nights. They probably had me in one of the B towns. It does look like the October 6th show, you were wrestling Razor Ramon, um, yeah, in like Germany or something. Yeah, it looks like you were not. Yeah, it looks like you were not around. I guess for that, I'm just trying to to look up the dates and and see. It's it's possible that you were you know wrestling elsewhere. Um, I know, obviously, November 25th. I believe you're gone. I just thought it was funny that he said that. Um, you no, know, fake kind the injury. of. Yeah, yeah, kind of ironically that you <laughs> yeah. faked the injury. Then I was looking at, at a show uh, at MSG on November 25th. I guess you were, you were gone uh, at this point, and he didn't wrestle on that show. So I actually thought that was kind of extra funny and extra ironic. Like, no, that was he, my that was actually my last night in, in WWE WWF. Uh, that was the night that I went to the ring, and uh, so the fans know I have I still have the X-rays. In fact, uh, I had a fractured spinous process. Uh, which is the tail that sticks off the back of your vertebra. Um, that had happened at the uh, the Monday show in Richmond. Uh, it was a Monday Night Raw in Richmond, Virginia. Uh, the Monday before uh, that, that was Thanksgiving week. Friday, we were in Philadelphia at the Spectrum. Saturday was my last night in Madison Square Garden. I already put my notice in. And it was just working through the notice. Uh, so, But I, I've always had a saying long before I got into wrestling, people think like they do and they do like they think. So when you hear Sean say, well, he must have faked an injury, tells you clearly that that's exactly what he would do <laughs> if he didn't, if he didn't want to, didn't want to work or have to put somebody over or whatever. Uh, look in my career, I'm very comfortable with my reputation. Uh, anybody that's ever used me, uh, will tell you that I would go above and beyond. I eat an ECW three days after having major reconstructive surgery on my elbow. Uh, cutting the cast off, checking myself out of the hospital and going to the ECW arena. So uh, task and German suplex me for the spot to build that angle. Uh, I was one that often worked hurt and because that's the way I was taught. And, you know, we'd heard sometimes to my own detriment, in hindsight, foolhardy, you know, that I would, uh, uh, you know, do that, you know, for the company. But, you know, I think it's hard pressed for anybody to say that Shane Douglas was a, uh, you know, a, uh, an injury convenient guy, you know, uh, that I, I, I often worked hurt. And that, that was one of the things that set ECW apart from the other guys. We didn't have a deep bench. And, uh, for someone like Sean to make that accusation and clearly shows his colors. Uh, I, I was come out and hand my belt over to you because, uh, I broke my mouth and I was going to embarrass you and was afraid of getting shot on, uh, you know, just, you know, look, Sean, I've said this a million times, I'll say it again. Sean is one of the premier in-ring performers in the history of our industry. Uh, but for me to see somebody that talented have to rely and resort to such absurd politicking and backstabbing as Sean did, 
uh, renowned in, inside the industry for it. I think now outside uh, the inside of the industry, I think pretty much anybody that knows Shawn Michaels knows that to be the case with him. Um, I never understood why a guy that talented would stoop to that level. If I have to politic to get ahead of you, then that tells me I'm not really that self-assured and don't have the, uh, the requisite uh, mindset to be a big draw. If you have to rely on politicking, then clearly you in your own head don't believe you can get it done in the ring. And Sean's ability certainly didn't speak to that. But the fact that he so often resorted to that well, the politicking in the backstab. It wasn't just me. He did it with his own partner, Marty Gennetti. He did it to Ahmed Johnson. He did it to uh, uh, Dustin Rhodes. Uh, he did it to uh, uh, Pierre. Uh, uh, you know, there were so many guys that I'm sure I'm just scratching the surface. I'm sure that anybody that came and went through that company anytime that he was a top guy there, that you'll hear similar stories across the board ad nauseum. It's just what Sean does. In his own words, you can make friends or you can make money. I choose to make money. That's Sean Michaels. Don't forget Bam Bam, too. I mean, how famous was that? That whole thing with Bam yeah. Bam. So that's another one. But, mm. you know, I'm, gonna, I'm scratching my head here. You know, and, and Shane, I, I'm sure you've realized it, too, especially with the growth of Twitter. You see more people showing love for Dean Douglas. And, and we know, you know, it's not, it's not something <laughs> that you love to, to really, you know, go. It wasn't your favorite thing that you did in your career, but it seems like there's a really big contingent of fans that do cherish that time of when they watch. Maybe it was when they first started watching and, or maybe they're even starting to just discover it now. But do you think that your one podcast partner, uh, Mr. JP is a little bit of a Dean Douglas mark because it seems like he just went a little bit out of his <laughs> way to talk about Dean Douglas tonight. <laughs> well, look, to be clear, I mean, if he is, thank you. I, I uh, uh, to be clear, the reason I went to the WWF in the first place, I, you know, it, it's, it's not a secret to anybody that followed my career that I loved working in ECW. Uh, I was tailor-made for it, and, and it for me. I mean, it was a match made in heaven, as, as the saying goes. I had no reason or desire to leave ECW and never would have uh, had the checks not started bouncing at the end like they did. Uh, but at that time, I was wooed so heavily by the WWF and, you know, uh, Jim Ross saying things like, you know, that sometimes the opportunity knocks twice and you start to look at it and think, well, you've been in ECW, you've pretty much done everything you could do there. And then you allow yourself to start to entertain the possibility. And, uh, you know, they laid it on heavy and thick. You know, I've talked about it before the, you know, the room at the Plaza hotel for my wife and I overlooking central park and the limousine picking us up in, uh, to our surprise, taking us to see Miss Saigon in a Broadway play because in the previous uh, visit, I had said my wife really loved Broadway plays. Uh, just things like that, that, you know, a bottle of uh, Dom Perignon champagne, I think it was on ice when we got back to the room after the Miss Saigon, uh, a tray full of exotic fruits and uh, 13 great big chocolate-covered strawberries sprinkled in <laughs> gold dust. Uh, you know, just like that kind of stuff that makes you start to think, okay, well, maybe this is, you know, you, you drop your guard a little bit. Uh, but even when I signed up to the point that I signed and even afterwards, I thought it just didn't feel right. Like I, I could feel something wrong. Like, look, the reason they lured me into going there was 
I was convinced that I could have done the Dean Douglas character properly. And uh, had they allowed me to do what I do, that that character could have gotten over in spades. But when I was told immediately to speak in a monotone voice, uh, monotone in most uh, connotations is a means boring, um, especially in this business. Uh, Vince telling me that because he had an eighth grade teacher that used to talk like that and it drove him crazy. And I told him, I said, well, the difference was you couldn't get up and walk out of that classroom, but people today can channel surf and I'm one of them that does it. And, uh, but he refused to allow me to, uh, to use the, the inflection that I so famously did with my promos. Uh, you know, in hindsight, looking back on it, I think it, it, the only thing that ever made sense to me was in ECW as the central mouthpiece for that company. I was nightly crushing WCW and WWF, uh, crushing the talent in those places, challenging them to shoots, et cetera. Well, they couldn't respond or wouldn't respond. And I think what better way for Vince to shut me up than to take me out of there and, and stifle me. Uh, it worked for a few months and then <laughs> gave me a whole lot of ammunition whenever I did get back to ECW uh, and was unchained. But th to be clear, I fervently believe that the Dean Douglas character had legs and could have been a compelling character there had politics not played such a dominant part of uh, the then WWF. Uh, you know, a sad epitaph, not just me, but how many times you've heard the story of people just couldn't wait to get out of there. Uh, me being one of them. Uh, I broke a bone in my back and was almost appreciative for that fact because it gave me a reason to get out of there and had, you know, luckily for me, my attorney had uh, uh, negotiated in a change of phraseology in one of the clauses. One clause they had in their contract infamously said that you could not sue even in cases of negligence. Now ponder that for a second. So <laughs> we go to the ring and the ring is you know, broken and, and you know, uh, it's a mess. And Vince knows it and has known about it for a long time and just decides he's not going to fix it because why should he? Uh, and the thing collapses and you're broken back or you break your neck and you're paralyzed. Well, no skin off his back. You can't sue me even because I was negligent. What an absurd thing to ask anybody in any realm even that one. And my lawyer had changed that phrase to, uh, he had, he was negotiating with JJ and he, he asked JJ point blank. He said, uh, Mr. Dillon, would you sign this contract worded like this? And JJ hemmed and hawed for a few seconds. And my attorney said, exactly. And you'd be smart not to sign it. I can't in good conscience have my client either. I suggest changing the phrasing to cannot sue except in cases of negligence. Negligence is a pretty high bar to, to, to meet. I mean, just because something bad happens doesn't mean somebody was negligent. And uh, when the ring collapsed with Davy Boy Smith, uh, well, it didn't collapse, but he, he went through up to his knees when he gave a headbutt about 20 minutes to nine when they were back then doing an hour of taped uh, before and an hour taped after, and then from nine to 10, it was live. Uh, about 20 minutes till he, you know, he sunk up to his knees and they, a, an army of people converged on the ring. And literally, as they're getting out of the ring, the pyro is starting and, and Scott and I were the first match in. So nobody ever had a chance to test the ring. Uh, not that I ever wanted to break a bone in my back, but that it had occurred gave me uh, 
gave me the leverage to tell Vince that I, Vince wanted me to work after I put my notice in. He wanted me to work like a three month notice or a four month, some, something ridiculous. And quite frankly, I couldn't afford to. I, I couldn't afford to work there. As the main semi main event from the day I started on the road, uh, I was making pennies on the dollar to what everybody else was making in a similar position. And uh, uh, luckily, that broken back gave me the leverage to tell him either you give me my release or we go to court. And, uh, you know, so if there's such a good thing as coming up out of a broken back, it was that. Uh, but to this day, I've never figured out because, uh, I've heard Vince accuse me of faking. Uh, I've heard, uh, uh Pat Patterson say that at one point and Shawn Michaels said at one point, well, to, you know, I'm a pretty smart guy, but I've never quite figured out how to fake an x-ray. Uh, <laughs> it, it's impossible to take an x-ray uh you know when you when you take an x-ray first of all that your name is is x-rayed into the x-ray so maybe today with the, all the technology that exists today it might be possible i don't know i, I doubt it would still be possible but back then it was impossible and uh you know not that i ever wanted to have a broken back i still have residual uh, problems with it to this day but the fact that it happened gave me the leverage to get out of there or vince could have basically kept me kind of to that contract. I still had, I think, two years left on the contract. It was still a lengthy period of time. And uh, there wouldn't have been a damn thing I could have done about it. And when I got out of there, you know, the NFL of our industry, I was so thankful to be out of there and going back. And you know, I've had so many wasteful since. Would I this and would I that? The answer is no. When I left there in 96, I told myself I would never go back or 95, whatever it was. I would never go back and I haven't. I have no desire to work for him. Uh, you know, the old saying is, fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. I'm not giving the chance to fool me twice. I fell for that line of bullshit once. I won't fall for it twice. And I've been able to carve a fairly decent career for myself. And I'm proud of the fact that I've never appeared at a WrestleMania, never needed to. Um, you know, so for the, that I, the fans that I have that follow and understand, I ain't worried about the ones that don't understand or don't want, care to understand. The ones that do follow and understand uh, is plenty for me. I put my head on a pillow at night and sleep very soundly every night because of that. I'm proud of what I've accomplished uh, and you know, proud of the legacy that I've carved out and not having ever appeared at one of those. And I thank the fans for that. Yeah, and obviously you go on to the biggest part of your career right after that. And hey... Uh, I don't know about you, but you're booked every WrestleMania weekend in town. So I guess uh, last laugh, huh? <laughs> you're still booked every single weekend, WrestleMania or not. I, I still still make a living and, and uh, you know, still may, able to take care of myself and my family. Uh, you know, that's all I care about. I don't need the big mansion up on the hill. And to me, that's just a whole lot of rooms you got to clean that, uh, that you never use anyway. Uh and the fact that I, I've been able to watch my boys grow up is priceless to me. Can't put a, a price tag on it. And, you know, as you guys know, I've been working on other projects and stuff. And, you know, I, I think still, as the saying goes, the best is yet to come. No, I completely agree with that. And, hey, you got to, uh, you got to wear some of that slick-ass uh, teacher gear, too. You got to wear your teacher clothes for all those Dean Douglas uh, vignettes. <laughs> so you got to recycle some of, the, uh, some of the wardrobe. So there you go, Shane. You got to be comfortable. <laughs> yeah, there's a there's a quick story just to show you just the insanity of the place. Uh, I went up there. This is prior to me 
starting on the road. I, I was there for like one or two or three months before I went on the road doing all the vignettes. Well, those vignettes were not done like on a week to week basis. I went up there uh, a couple of occasions and would film like five, six, seven, eight of those things in any given day. And as you can imagine, you know, with wardrobe changes and, you know, makeup touch-ups and, you know, all these different promos and vignettes that you're doing for all these different uh, 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 matches that you're critiquing. Uh, first of all, I was told when we went in that I would be able to legitimately grade those, that I, they would send me the tapes in advance and that I would go through and I would pick out those things that I would critique. The reason that that character was, was ever created in the first place was Vince saw that a lot of his wrestlers were taking shortcuts, you know, getting into, uh, routines of sorts and making, you know, bad, uh, uh, uh not sound wrestling uh, uh decisions in the ring uh for instance brett who i'm a huge fan of mark for uh had gotten to the point where he would only grape behind the leg when the legitimate pin was coming and he falls finish he didn't and so vince realized i think wisely that the fans whether they can articulate that point to you subliminally they're catching something something looks different and uh you know, especially today with, you know, the advent of the internet and everything, people would freeze frame stuff and watch it frame by frame. Clearly today they were caught on. And I think back then they were catching on. And it wasn't just Brett. Everybody on the card was, was making these kind of mistakes. And Vince had, had guaranteed me that I would be able to do that. They would send those tapes to me in advance and that I would critique them and point out those things. And, you know, we'd, we'd slice out things if it was too much or add some things in if it wasn't enough but that I'd be able to give them legitimate grades, A, B, C, and uh, A, B, C, D, F. And that, I think we did that for one or two weeks and then suddenly became, give them a grade of TT for terrible twosome and, you know, just all these really cornball things that I thought were cornball for a character that was supposed to be professorial and legitimate. Suddenly he's wearing sequins and a, and a, you know, cartoon outfit and, and doing these, what I considered silly uh, grades. Well, we were there on a particular Sunday and on the sixth one. Now, you know, these back then, even though I was usually one take, Vince wanted multiple takes of everything with slight changes in the verbiage and, you know, just, you know, much like a movie set, you know, doing the same scene over and over and over and over again just to get slight variations. And again, between each one of these, a costume change and hair and makeup touch-ups and, you know, then the, the verbiage, you know, you review the verbiage and then recording it. And, you know, this recording, the sound might have been off or a light might have gone out. Whatever. So there were these constant retakes. Well, on the sixth one, we'd been there about eight or nine hours at that point. On the sixth one, uh, I had done the, uh, the verbiage exactly as Vince wanted in the monotone Dean Douglas voice. Boring as fuck. And after I finished, I said, Vince, can I, can I do that last one uh, one more time and just change it up a little bit and just give you just a, a look at a different possibility? He said, sure. So I did another one, but I did it as a franchise, uh, laughing and pounding my fist on the podium and, you know, uh, real heavy inflection of the character and long dramatic pauses. 
And uh, as we got right as I finished up with that, before he could answer, somebody came in and said he had a phone call. So he got called out of the room. As he was gone 15, 20 minutes, I went through the room and asked everybody that was there. Uh, Jim Ross, Michael P.S. Hayes, Stan Lane, uh, the three makeup girls, uh, the hair person, uh, two or three lighting techs, two or three sound techs, uh, the camera operators. There was a room full of a lot of people, 15, 20 people. And while he was out of the room, I went around the room and pulled everybody. I started with, with Michael Hayes. And Michael Hayes' words, exact words to me were, I don't know about anybody else, but I thought that last one was fucking hot. Now, you know, I've always considered Michael Hayes as, as a pretty good stick guy. Uh, Jim Ross thought, he thought my, the last one was much, everybody in the room, every single person in that room said that they thought the last one was much better. Cause keep in mind, as boring as it was for me, it must have been pulling teeth for them to have to sit there and watch these retakes all day long. Well, here comes Vince back into the room, his glasses down on the end of his nose, a cup of coffee, and he leans against the table. I said, well, Vince, which one do you think was better? And he gave this long, dramatic pause. And he said, well, I appreciate what you were trying to do. Pause, pause, pause. But I think I like my way better. What's everybody else think? And without fail, every person in that room, Michael Hayes, Jim Russell, Stan Lane included, said exactly opposite what they had said when he was out of the room. They said, they, we, we thought so too, but that's what we told them when you were gone. And it was at that moment that I knew I had to get the fuck out of there. That clearly, the last one was much, much better, more compelling to watch. And that they, that they all so quickly just yes banned them. Uh, shocked me. You know, it's, uh, you know, it's one thing to be uh, loyal to a boss. It's another to be loyal to a fault. That you're going to agree with something, even when you really disagree with it, just to go along and get along. I guess that's the way Vince likes things up there. Uh, you could go through the annals of business history and find countless businesses that failed because of exactly that. Um, you know, uh, Andrew Carnegie is a, is a big one that stands out in my mind. Rockefeller and other titans of business. Uh, some of the wealthiest men that have ever lived. Uh, and although they were very strong personalities and, you know, uh, uh, strong bosses, they did have people close to them that could be open and honest with them and, and speak their mind. I'm sure there were times they didn't like it, but I'm sure that, you know, that they also saw the value in it. Not to say that they agreed every time or went along every time that someone disagreed with them. But that is, in business, an invaluable asset to have, to have knowledgeable people around you that understand that industry and willing to give you an unvarnished opinion on what they're seeing. I don't understand how, if you point something out to me to make something better, how I say, well, fuck you, Chad. I, I don't want you there anymore. You're fired because you didn't agree with me. It's ridiculous. It's absurd. And yet we've heard that. I, I've watched it, witnessed it firsthand, but we've heard that same story how many times, countless times from people that have left there or been fired from there. And, uh, you know, I don't, you know, nothing in business is coincidence. You know, where we see this precipitous drop off in the ratings and the attendance and all the things we mentioned earlier, uh, that is, I'm sure it's not by design. That's where they want to be sitting. I'm sure they'd rather have the 48 to 52 million that used to watch watching, but they don't. Why? Uh, 
clearly there's something about the acumen that is applied in that business that forbids or uh, frowns upon dissent. And so you get a bunch of yes men and, you know, when things are good, never, never notice it. But when things start to get bad, it becomes glaringly noticeable. And now you're looking at that business when you see this, this drop off and just applying what I just said, you can start to see that there is some implication that it is having and it's had a negative impact on that company. Now, instead of doing a little AFA this week, which is Ask Franchise Anything, I wanted to do a little stump the franchise this week. So, Shane, I got a question for you. Well, this shouldn't be hard. (laughs) Here we go, Shane. I think it might be. But if you're the dean, you might be able to get this pretty easily. But (laughs) which triple threat member did Dean Douglas beat at a WWF house show in 1995 in East Rutherford, New Jersey? Triple threat member in East Rutherford. It would either be, my guess is it's Chris Candido or possibly Brian Lee. You would be wrong on both. And I was shocked to see this. Really? Yes. Yes, in 1995, you actually beat Bam Bam Bigelow in his home state of New Jersey. Can you believe that? Dean Douglas beat Bam Bam. Really? Yeah. No, I, I don't. I have no recollection of that. Wow. What town was that in? East Rutherford, over in the Meadowlands. Wow. How do I have no recollection of that? That Isn't is that crazy? that's crazy. I would have never. He, Bam Bam would have been the last out of all the triple threat members. I, was, I only knew that Benoit Malenko at that point had not been there. And uh, I knew that Chris and Brian had been at different times in and out. I didn't know exactly exact times, but I would have wagered everything on one of those guys. I have no recollection. Or that uh, Vince would have had me beat Bam Bam anywhere, let alone New Jersey. Are you trying to say that you didn't want to Beat Bam Bam in, in in his home state? No, 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 no. But you know, Bam Bam was a was a a, a pretty big name that, that they had, by that time had used uh, pretty extensively, and you know that they would have put him in with a guy that they clearly weren't pushing, uh, and put him over. Uh, strange. That's a that's one of those. Uh, Strange uh, but true uh, uh, WWE trivia, I guess, because I I have no recollection of ever working Bam Bam prior to our time in ECW. The uh, the click figured somebody had to win that match, right? It was got to be uh, one of you guys. <laughs> I'm surprised they didn't take it to a one hour draw and and, uh, and 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 you know take that around the loop and never put one of us over. It's a good thing that Shawn Michaels now wasn't flipping that coin because God knows where it'd end up, you know, with. Uh, the little, uh, the, the little woo-hoo going the other way. But, uh, hey, before we wrap it up here, and I don't know if this is going to be a long one, we were supposed to talk about Cliff Compton. <laughs> and I don't know if you want to save it for next week. Oh, We completely forgot about it with the midst of everything going on. If you want to save it, we'll save it. If you want to touch on it before we wrap up, touch on it before we wrap up. It's your show. It's your choice. Yeah, let, let, let's do it now because uh, you know, God knows what the news is going to come up between now and then. But, um the uh, the first time I met Cliff, we were on uh, a trip to Nigeria, and uh, we were uh, uh, 
wrestling at, that one of the sponsors a guy uh, by the name of Prophet, the Prophet they called him I forget his name off the top of my head but they ever called him the Prophet and he was an evangelist and had a, the, the biggest church in Nigeria huge sprawling compound tens of thousands of people and then they had an ancillary building uh, that held the overflow of another five or ten thousand people uh, what was in hindsight heartbreaking was there were so many people that were holding up signs outside. I have cancer. I have AIDS. I, you know, I have this. I have that. And they wanted the prophet to do what they call the laying of the hands, you know, to, to quote unquote heal them. And uh, you know, and, the, and these people were, I mean, just some of the poorest people you've ever seen. Uh, the, the, the nation and that the, the, the crazy part is Nigeria has a ton of money, and it's an oil producing country. But a, a very, very small, minute portion of the population capitalizes on that, and the rest of the population goes without. And just really heartbreaking um, to, to see, you know, just wonderful people, just really wonderful people. And uh, we uh, were at this, you know, it was a Sunday, and we went to this uh, uh, the, the, the church service. And uh, afterwards, they, you know, the prophet came out, and there was like a, uh, like I guess you'd call it like an alley, but you know, probably 15, 20 feet wide and a long corridor between the two buildings. And this is like when I say a sprawling compound, they had stores in there and, and uh, a restaurant and you know, all these side rooms. And it was a massive, massive place. And all these people outside, they had the cameras rolling, of course, and, and they uh, had several handlers. One was a young, very attractive woman. And most of the guys had left to go back. Bobby Lashley, me, uh, uh, Cliff Compton, uh, who else? Uh, there were four or five of us that stayed behind. And Cliff had, had been hurt. He had a bad back and he had hurt his wrist on one of the matches and, and uh, or during his match there. And asked the one young lady, the, the attractive woman that was the handler, Told him and he said, you know, could you get me in line? You know, I'd like the prophet. You know, he's a pretty devout guy. He said, I'd like, I'd really love the prophet to to give me a healing. So the prophet starts through and laying the hands on people, and you know they're all falling down and wiggling and stuff, and you know you can see really hoping that this had worked. Uh, and this young lady would take Cliff. If the prophet was moving to the left, she would take Cliff over in front, like in the direction that he was heading, and as soon as the prophet would see him standing there, he would turn and go the other way. So the lady would take him over that direction, and the prophet would see him he'd turn and go the other way. This went on for like about an hour. And Bobby Lass and I were laughing our asses off because it was so obvious. Well, afterwards, he never gets the laying of the hands. We get taken up to the prophet's uh, apartment, and a beautiful, beautiful apartment. And we're sitting there, a bunch of us that are sitting there, barbarian, uh, Bobby, me, uh, you know, all of us at Cliff, uh, all of us were there. I think uh, Mama, uh, Barbarian's wife, was there. And uh, the prophet comes in. And uh, after probably about a half hour, 45 minutes, he comes walking in. <laughs> Cliff goes walking right up to him and he kneels down and he says, Oh, Father, uh, it was a wonderful service. Uh, could you please give me a healing? And the prophet. <laughs> Like tap them on the top of the head. Oh yeah, right. Get out of here. And the, <laughs> <other way>. and 
<laughs> you can see that Cliff was so dejected, like he didn't give me a healing. And and we're all like giggling under our breath, like like you could see the work, you know, it was such a blatant work. And uh <laughs> I think to the to the time we got back in America, he was sort of a little ticked off that he didn't get a healing. <laughs> Something to see. That's it. <laughs> really was. So what a what a great guy, though. I didn't know that you went there. in it, That was 2013. I looked it up as you were talking. Now, he must have told you about his infamous Nigeria trip from around 2000, I think 2011, where uh, he basically was stranded in, uh, in Lagos, Nigeria, yes. with uh, uh, Luke Gallows. And uh, there was one other guy. I can't remember his name. Um, and he, they were stranded in the... Uh, the yeah, the U.S. Embassy had to get involved, and it was all this crazy stuff, and that uh, great power, Udi, was the one that uh, was uh, kind of swindling everybody. So I'm shocked that he went back there so fast, but what a trip. Yeah, I'm looking at it. It's you, Bobby Lashley, the Barbarian, uh, Cliff Compton, and Chris Masters all uh, headed over to uh, Nigeria. Yeah. What a tour. Jeez. Yeah, we had we, we did. We had a loaded crew of guys. It was a great tour as far as the camaraderie amongst the guys. Uh, you know, just you know, when you get to a place like that, and like the compound, we stayed in a beautiful hotel. It was an Australian-owned hotel, and uh, but it had a huge wall around it with you know barbed wire at the top, and we had a like a small throng of uh, of military there with us. You know, uh, jeeps with machine guns mounted on the back of them. Uh, you know, these people were there 24 hours around the clock. Everywhere we went, they were with us. And you start to think, like, if you need that kind of protection, like, that's, I guess, a little scary. You know, it's, uh, in any time, you know, just politically speaking, any time you have a population, that many people that are, you know, like, that far behind, uh, you know, and the money being taken by that few people, you know, that, all it's going to take is a match before that place goes up. And, I certainly didn't want to be there when that happened. You know, I'd heard stories that Kevin Sullivan told me that the UN, uh, uh, I think it was the UN embassy or the UN compound had gotten bombed, like right down the road from where they were staying at, at a trip before that. Yeah. And the story of course, where, uh, uh, Luke Gallows and them had, had rifles pulled on them. You know, it's a, when you're in a place like that and you know that, you know, what are you going to do? Call call the police. You know, you know, go to the embassy, you know, it's hard to do. You have a bullet in the back of your head. And uh, it makes you really, made you really on edge. And, uh, you know, but again, I couldn't say more about, like, the, the, the head of the uh, squadron that was with us. Uh, his name was John. And at the end of the tour, towards the, like the last day or two, he asked me if I would give him some American money. Well, at first I thought he was, like, holding me up, you know, like, you know, give me money or else. And he didn't mean, he didn't say it that way and didn't mean it that way, but you know, the language, even though they speak English, they speak very broken English. Uh, I realized he just wanted, you know, something as a souvenir. And, uh, he asked for like an American dollar. Well, I gave him, a, I think it was a 20, a 10, a five and a one. And, uh, when I handed that money to him, he actually got tears in his eyes and he said, we are friends now. And I said, of course we're friends. I said, I appreciate you watching in there. It's, you know, a little souvenir to remember me by. I mean, he looked like I had given him a bar of gold. Not only was the value, it was just, it was just that I had given him something uh, that he was so appreciative of 
but all those guys that, that were there to protect us and all the people we spoke of, spoke with while we were there were just really wonderful people. And, uh, you know, we went to the king of, uh, of Lagos. We went to the, the, I guess you call it the palace. And like all the servants that were in the palace and the and you know, we're in a very, very tight area and you know, hundreds and hundreds of people came out. They typically stay in uh inside during the day because it's so hot and come out at night. But they with you know, within a short period of time we were surrounded by hundreds of people. And you know, when you first get there you you feel a little bit uneasy when you're surrounded by this strong of people that, you know, if they decide to attack you, there's not a thing you can do. But they weren't like that at all. They were very, very sweet, uh, wonderful people. You know, it was just such a pleasure to meet them and, 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 and be around those people and, you know, see this, their intestinal fortitude and, and, uh, and their outlook. You know, they were just, uh, be really easy to be down in that kind of situation. And I didn't see that. I saw just a bubbling, uh, ebullient group of people that I would love to go back. Uh, to Nigeria and see them again. Admit you were just feeling safe because you had the barbarian there. You don't need to give us a whole uh, background. The barbarian was on your side, so you were safe. Yeah, stand stand behind Barb and you're and you're good to go. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, we're gonna get into the wrap up here. This was a great episode. Uh, what I love about this show is that it doesn't matter. We could have a hundred topics. We could have ten topics. We always find something to talk about. And uh, it's always so much fun, and uh, we're going to come into the uh, the wrap-up here. We want to remind everybody that our winner for this contest that we had for the first franchise Shane Douglas Figures Toy Company action figure promotion was Bobby Hawkins, Twitter name eHawk78. We will be in contact with you within the next day, so we can hook you up with your franchise Figures Toy Company figure. And we want to thank Figures Toy Company for lending us this great figure to hand out. It's uh, figurestoycompany.com and wrestlingsuperstore.com for all your wrestling action figure needs. You can check out the rising stars of professional wrestling as well as the legends of professional wrestling featuring Shane Douglas, featuring Jim Cornette, Mikey Whipwreck, the Blue Meanie, Just Incredible, and so many more in those rising stars. Get them while they're hot. Tama Tonga, Joey Ryan. Chris Hero, and so many others. It's all going on over at WrestlingSuperstore.com and FiguresToyCompany.com and so much more to come in the coming weeks between us and Figures Toy Company. And if you want to follow us and see if we have any more promotions coming your way, head on over to Twitter. You can follow Shane at the Franchise SD. You can follow John at Two Man Power Trip. You can follow me at Wrestling Pal. And if you haven't followed all of us already, you can follow the show. It's at the Three Threat Pod. So get on over to Twitter. Follow us today if you want to send in any questions for Shane to answer in any upcoming episodes. Please take advantage of sending us any long form ones at the Triple Threat Pod at gmail.com. Again, it's the Triple Threat Pod at gmail.com. You can get all of the show downloads. You can get all of the YouTube videos over at tmptofwrestling.com. As well as check out the links on all the other podcast platforms that we're on. iTunes, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Player FM, all the other great places we are. There's so many to name. I'm trying to think if I'm missing any up top of my head. Spotify. Oh, Podomatic. Hello. How about that one? Get us on Podomatic. There you go. That is my preferred choice. The Podomatic app is so easy to use and you just get us every single week with the click of a button. 
and it's waiting for you when you uh, when we upload it you get it so head on over to potomatic.com download that app today and besides that and oh hello prowrestlingtees.com slash franchise sd check out all of the great franchise shane douglas t-shirts as well as the triple threat podcast t-shirt so many great ones to choose from who knows, maybe a certain uh, Dean Douglas shirt could pop up one day. Maybe uh, we'll get in negotiations <laughs> with uh, Mr. Uh, Mr. Shane Douglas over here about something like that. And it, if you're going to come see us, I'm going to give it to Shane so he can tell you what's going on with him. But come on out to Boardwalk Beatdown on August 25th in Atlantic City. Just a couple of weeks. Standalone Pro Wrestling put together this huge convention in Atlantic City. What a great spot for a wrestling convention. And we are all going to be there Shane is going to be a part of the Captain's Corners uh, crew, along with Dominic DiNucci. They're going to be doing their thing at Boardwalk Beatdown, and we are going to be with King Kong Bundy. Cannot wait for that. It's going to be one hell of a day. Nice. But, Shane, that's enough out of me. Tell us what's going on in your world this weekend, as well as uh, anything else in the franchise land. Well, also, a real quick wrap-up to to, uh, Boardwalk Beatdown. Uh, The Queen of Extreme, Francine, will also be uh, at the convention, and I know that uh, the vendor, she's at a different vendor, but uh, the two vendors are, are, are talking. There will be an overlap time where we'll be taking pictures together with everybody, the, the two of us. So uh, there's always going to be that possibility. Uh, so a lot of great stuff to look for. Like you said, they've done a great job in getting ready for that boardwalk beat down and just a slew of great names and pretty much everybody that's anybody uh, from wrestling is going to be there. So it's going to be a great big convention. Don't miss that one. But this weekend, uh, on August 18th, I'm going to be in North Carolina at the AIWF, and uh, uh, I, I can't remember the name of the town, but it's AIWF, <laughs> and uh, my agent didn't send me the right information there, that's why I'm sort of caught off guard here, so I'll be there on the 18th, looking forward to always seeing the great fans in North Carolina, it takes me back to being a kid, when I got my uh, 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 contract there with the NWA, and used to live in Charlotte, so North Carolina, great place. I'll be there this coming uh, Saturday. So uh, get a chance to come out to the AIWF show, and I'll have it posted on my Twitter tomorrow exactly where that will be, and look forward to seeing everybody down there. And look, 59 big episodes behind us. God knows how many more I have, but number 60 is coming next week. you got a question for the franchise. If you think, like JP, you can stump the franchise, so it was not too hard to do. Send your <laughs> questions in to the uh, Triple Threat podcast page. Uh, uh, and we'll make sure you get it put, put, put on the uh, docket for next week with all the great stories. Hey, thanks from the bottom of my heart to all the fans listening. Congratulations to Mr. Hawkins on the big one. We have more contests coming up, so make sure you get uh, keep your eyes open for that and get entered into those. Do that or get your ass franchise. <laughs> thanks for listening to the two-man power trip of wrestling. What the world is downloading.